Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June 2023, we're running our annual Radiothon, where we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy the podcast. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, and I'm James Whitmore. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land this show is being broadcast from, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and pay my respects to Elders past and present. It's the best week of the year here at 3CR. It's Radiothon. We need your help to support all the amazing presenters here at 3CR and keep Radical Radio thriving. Give us a call on 03-9419-8377 to make a tax-deductible donation or head online to givenow.org.au forward slash CR forward slash out of the blue. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all those who have already donated. We're a third of the way to our target and we really appreciate any support you can offer. Today I'm going to get a bit nostalgic and bring you some of my favourite moments from the show this year. I'll be right back after this announcement. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year. Fierce, independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep radical voices and issues on the airwaves. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Call the station on 03 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. Here at Out of the Blue, we love our marine environment. Um, This year, I tried snorkeling in Port Phillip Bay for the first time, and wow, what an incredible and beautiful world is living under the surface so close to Melbourne. We have such important marine sanctuaries right here in the bay. Jawbone, Ricketts Point, Point Cook. And if you're looking for an entry point into our wonderful underwater world, I can't recommend them highly enough. But we also know our marine environment is under threat, which is why we think it's so important to keep bringing you stories from the activists and researchers who are doing incredible work to protect our oceans. You can help us keep doing that by making a donation. Give us a call on 03-9419-8377 and let us know if there's a story we've done that got you particularly excited. This year, one of my favourite stories we've done was talking to researchers working to protect the Morgian skate. This is a wonderful and unique species of fish found only on Tasmania's west coast. And since we broadcast this story, researchers have sadly found that the population of these skates has fallen by half. We're going to hear a bit from two researchers at the University of Tasmania who are untangling the mysteries of why this skate is at risk of extinction. Uh, Hi, thank you for having us. yeah, so I'm uh, Dr. David Moreno, and I'm a research fellow here at uh, the Institute for Marine Antarctic Studies. Jason, how about you? What's your role in studying this mysterious beast? Uh, yeah, so uh, Professor Jason Simmons, we started working on the skate about 12 years ago now, I think it is roughly, um, and just realised what an amazing, unusual animal it is, and lives in an 
in only lives in estuaries, which is the only um, Alaskan brain that does that in the world. It just, you know, really got me in and got me really interested and wanted to know more. And the fact that it was endangered, you know, we, we knew that we had a responsibility to, to find out about it because it was really little known at that stage. Can you give us a bit of a sense of what makes this skate so unique? You mentioned that it's one of, that's the only um, skate and ray to live in, in estuaries. What else makes it unique? And, where, and what, kind of, what kind of life does it lead? Uh, yeah, so it's, uh, I guess, uh, it's the only known species that exclusively lives its entire life in, in purely brackish water. And in fact, it seems to be uh, a hyper-specialist. It, it requires these two very specific estuary systems in the west coast of Tasmania, very remote places. And they, uh, they themselves are quite different to anything else out there. They, uh, uh, they have a very specific set of, of uh, physical characteristics that create uh, basically a shallow water, deep water environment, if you will. Uh, the runoff from the rivers in the area creates this very thick layer of tannin water in the surface, uh, which has a double effect. It uh, creates a, a very distinct barrier of fresh water at the top uh, with a, a barrier of marine water underneath that gets trapped. And then also because of the tannins, light penetration gets blocked. So it's, it's a pitch black, uh, uh, dark environment. So you get these creatures that usually can only be found in, in very deep uh, uh, places in, in a, a very shallow estuary. And in fact, the skate's closest relatives are deep water species in New Zealand and Chile. Uh, so uh, yeah, like I said, this, this animals, what we know about the species uh, family, the, the, the group of, of species that are very similar, they're all very uh, uh, deep water specialists, fully marine animals. And, and these guys have adapted to exploit these unique habitats. Uh, and, and in doing so, they have developed uh, a, re a set of uh, physiological and behavioral adaptations that we have not seen in any other type of shark or ray. Uh, so they, they really have become very, very good at exploiting this unique niche. Uh, but because of that as well, it means that their entire species is restricted to this one particular area. So uh, that's what we call the microendemic species. Uh, and uh, that just means that it has a very restricted range, which in turn makes it incredibly vulnerable to any disturbances to those specific habitats that it now relies on. So how do you go about studying an animal like this? You just mentioned that they live in pitch black water. Yeah, it, it, it takes, um, you know, a lot of different techniques. Uh, so we, uh, we do surveys of them and we're currently using netting. Um, we know that's effective, um, but, you know, it, it's, it's not um, the best method for determining their abundance. Ultimately, we want to know how many there are left. Uh, but the netting, you know, has selectivity and it doesn't capture the small ones uh, very well. It's also prone to if they've got changes in behaviour, they're not moving around, those sorts of things, um, which can happen, particularly with the, the harbour uh, changing in terms of, you know, its um, uh, oxygen levels and, and salinity and other, um, other characteristics. So uh, we're looking, we were just in the field last week and we were looking, we, ha we were working with um, the Australian Maritime College, which is part of the university here, and they have this amazing underwater um, autonomous vehicle. It's like a submarine. I think it's about seven and a half metres long, very impressive uh, unit. 
It has um, a special type of sonar that can get really detailed uh, pictures of the seafloor and also a thing called LiDAR, which is basically imaging with light. So we're looking at using those sorts of technologies because it's pitch black. So, you know, sending an AUV down or, or towing a camera um, or a unit that holds these, um, these devices. Um, uh, you know, we've used uh, eDNA. So people might be aware of during COVID, there was, you know, to determine if COVID was in communities, people would test for um, its presence in your sewage and those sorts of things. It's a similar technique you basically take water samples and then you test to see if the DNA of the animal you're looking for is is uh, in the water samples. Um, it's, you know, amazing technology and it's getting better all the time. Uh, so, you know, we use a, a wide variety of techniques. We've done electronic tagging, uh, which is sort of, as I mentioned before, you know, where I sort of started with doing this work and, and David has expertise in, in that as well. So we put tags on the animals. We have some very special tags that not just tell us um, where the animal is, but also what the environment is. That's very important in, in, in this situation. So what the oxygen is, where the animal is, um, what the temperature is, um, and what depth it's at. And so we're using all sorts of methods. Um, it's it's a, a moving feast. We're basically always trying to, to, to see what is going to be the next method that really helps us. Um, we're doing genetics as well. You know, we're looking at population structuring. Um, you know, are there differences in the population at the various uh, sites within Macquarie Harbour? Um, yeah, so lots of different tools. So living in these two, as far as we know, only two places in Western Tasmania, it's clearly a very vulnerable species that is endangered. What are some of the main threats that we know of? And we also, of course, know that um, Macquarie Harbour has been quite badly impacted by salmon farming. What are some of the things that are threatening this species? Yeah, well, actually, that is the focus of our research at the moment. And uh, we just last month released uh, a report. Uh, it's worth mentioning that while the species was discovered in Bathurst Harbor, this, the, the animal hadn't actually been seen there since 1992. Uh, there had been some uh, uh, netting and diving surveys looking for them, but it's a very remote site, no, no land access. So uh, it was always tricky to, to figure out if uh, people were not finding any more animals because they were not there or they were maybe less abundant. Uh, so last year we uh, had a project that had a dedicated broad scale survey of Bathurst Harbor uh, using eDNA and uh, a submersible vehicle uh, to just very intensely look for the skate. And what we found was that uh, now the Mojin skate is no longer present in Bathurst Harbor, um, which is, uh, it does open a lot of questions. Uh, Bathurst is, is uh, pristine site, uh, uh, unlike Macquarie Harbor. So uh, uh, one of the interesting things that came from this uh, uh, research is that it really was only ever four individuals that were recorded there. So uh, these new results kind of uh, open up questions about whether there ever was an established population. Uh, what it means though for the Mojian skate is that in reality, there is only the one system where they live. Their entire species uh, uh, have their whole habitat in Macquarie Harbor, uh, nowhere else in the world. So uh, like you mentioned, Macquarie Harbor has a lot of uh, history of uh, human impacts. There's, there's mining, logging, uh, uh, dredging, and uh, more recently, uh, salmon farming and, and uh, uh, netting activities that can potentially impact the species. Uh, we know that 
in recent years, since uh, 2009, there has been a marked decline in oxygen levels in the water column, and that has been a very big source for concern. So our entire research right now has been focused on trying to understand how those environmental impacts might affect the species. And we have, in fact, detected that, that uh, there are signs for concern in the population. Uh, and and uh, we believe that conservation action is required uh, uh, with, with uh, uh, urgency, which is why the species has now been listed as a priority uh, uh, species for, for protection. Uh, but it's uh, at the point where we believe that every single impact that potentially is affecting the escape in the harbor has to be addressed. So it's not individual stressors, but rather any possible interaction with the skate that needs to be uh, looked at. Yeah, so as you just mentioned, it has been listed as a priority species. Um, it's still clearly quite a mysterious animal. Um, so, you know, if someone gave you, you know, all the resources you needed to protect this skate, what would be some of the first things that you would do to make sure this species exists forever into the future? It's a really interesting question. One of, one of the issues is that the, the skate, um, when, when we've looked at genetics in the past and we've just got um, funding, only just found out yesterday to do some more of that, is there is very little diversity in, um, in its genetic makeup. And that means that it's been in these areas, I mean, Macquarie Harbour in this instance, for a very long time in a very small area. And so there, the individuals um, are all very closely related. And so that creates problems in itself in that, you know, animals in those situations um, don't have, uh, often don't have the diversity for the populations to be, um, you know, thriving and, and uh, easily surviving. So, you know, there is, you start with those sorts of limitations that, that are on the animal um, and then there is, you know, the, the other uh things that you can look at, and that's the anthropogenic impacts in the environment. Um, and, and none of those are easy questions either. We know that Macquarie Harbour naturally is a very complex system. Um, it, it was uh, before any of the anthropogenic impacts uh, began. It was already a low oxygen system. As David said before, it's a stratified estuary. It has, you know, the, the, the three layers. Um, you know, the water flows that go into that area, uh, you know, are important as well. Um, it's a very complex system. So you can, um, you, you need to be really careful because making it, it seems like easy. You go, okay, these things didn't exist before. Let's do this. But, you know, making changes, actually, you, you need to, you know, have a really good basis for it because um, it could be quite uh, easily you can make, you know, sweeping changes and you don't actually change the situation. Um, you know, that said, uh, you know, if we could improve, um, you know, the oxygen levels in the harbour, then that would be something, of course, that we would look at doing. Um, but again, you know, as I said, there's no guarantee they can be changed back to the levels they were because it's a complex system. I think the important thing is that there's not just one player involved in, in improving this. It's, it's everyone. We're, as David said, we're at the stage now where every animal is extremely valuable. 
everyone needs to pitch together and it's no particular one group, it's the whole community. That was Jason Simmons and David Moreno from the University of Tasmania talking about the wonderful Morgian skate which was recently recognised as endangered and a priority species for the federal government. We'll be keeping an eye on how the government is progressing on its promise to prevent any new extinctions of creatures like the Morgian skate. Thank you to everyone who's calling in and making donations. We really appreciate your support and every cent counts to helping us keep making Radical Radio. Call in on 039419 8377 to make a donation. We're going to head to a song. This is Mervay Tree by Emma Donovan and the Putbacks with Delene Briscoe. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio.
Asian subtropical rainforests that don't usually burn were actually on fire. We have the obligation to care for country. So much forest burnt that around three billion animals are either killed or displaced. The more we push back against the colonial apparatus, the more positive change we can have in terms of addressing climate change. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2023. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR and that was Emma Donovan and the Putbacks with Delene Briscoe. Keep those calls and donations coming in on 03 Another story that we did on Out of the Blue this year that sort of blew my mind was speaking to Christine Dudgeon from the University of the Sunshine Coast, who is working on Lady Elliot Island at the southern end of the Great Barrier Reef. We don't often hear very good news from the Great Barrier Reef, particularly around coral bleaching, but Lady Elliot Island is a really hopeful story where people have worked incredibly hard to restore the island, and the island could serve as an important refuge for species moving due to climate change. Here's Christine talking about why this island is so important and some of the amazing wildlife that visits it. Hi Chris, so can you set the scene a little bit for us? Can you tell us a bit about Lady Elliot Island and what makes it so special? Yeah, hi James, Um, thanks for asking about it. Uh, Yeah, Lady Elliot Island is an incredible place. So it's quite a small 16th island um, that has a, a fairly small reef around it. It's right at the bottom of the Great Barrier Reef at the southern end. So it's the last island and reef before you leave uh, the Great Barrier Reef and hit the Great Sandy Straits Marine Park, where uh, the next place essentially is Gari or Fraser Island. Um, so this location makes Lady Elliot special in that uh, it doesn't get as hot there in the water as it does further north up in the, the high parts of the tropics. Um, so it, it the coral reef is exposed to a much bigger range of temperatures. Um, so in winter it gets sort of less than 20 degrees, it can be quite chilly, and in summer it can get up to 28 degrees. So it's a really quite a large temperature range. Uh, the other part of its location is that it's near the continental shelf drop-off. So you get these upwelling and nutrient-rich waters, um, which we think is partly why it's a place where you'll see big megafauna, so big marine mammals and, and other sharks and things that will come through that uh, that area. Um, but uh, as an island itself, it's um, the focus of our research program, uh, Leaf to Reef, the Biodiversity of Lady Elliot Island, uh, to do with the vegetation. So back in the nine, uh, back in the 1800s, um, the island was completely denuded of vegetation. So all of the guano was removed because there's a lot of seabirds that were using that island, pooing all over the island, um, and that guano was really important fertilizer. And so the vegetation was stripped uh, completely off it. Um, then, for good measure, they put a few goats on there to sort of. Uh, in case people were shipwrecked, which kept the vegetation down. And it's only been since really the 1980s that any restoration has occurred. And that's sort of part of the focus of our research program. Um, We also run the Project Manta research uh, uh, on the island. So that's where actually we we started working on Lady Elliot several years ago. And, And so Lady Elliot's also a very important 
place for mantas. It has our highest concentration of manta rays on the east coast of Australia. Um, and some of those animals we've now been you know, following for several years. There's one individual, he is, so we have a few records from Lady Elliot Island, which I think is possibly fun. Um, there's one manta ray we call Taurus, so we can tell them apart from their patterns. And Taurus, he was first photographed on the reef at Lady Elliot Island in 1982. And he was a mature manta ray at that part time. So we know that because male mantas have external claspers, penis-type structures. If they're mature, they sort of extend past the fins. We can see it. So we can see that in photographs. So he was photographed 1982. We see him almost every year when we go there. That was Christine Dudgeon from the University of the Sunshine Coast talking about the Leaf to Reef project on Lady Elliot, Lady Elliot Island. When we talk about the oceans, it's impossible to ignore how they're connected across the globe. Here at Out of the Blue, we think it's important to bring you stories from all over the world about things that are happening in the seas. For one story we did this year, we heard from Alastair Allen from the Bob Brown Foundation, who had just been to Antarctica investigating the impact of industrial krill fishing. And this October, the Australian government will be meeting with other world leaders to decide whether to increase catch limits for krill. Here's Alastair. So can you talk us through and then perhaps explain a little bit about what the essential problem here is with the krill fishing industry? I mean, you've just alluded to some pretty intense wildlife conflict, but could you just, um, you know, distill it down to what the, the real problem here is with the industry? So the problem with krill fishing is that they are targeting the foundation of the Antarctic ecosystem. So when you look at all the animals in the Antarctic food web, krill is either the very thing they rely on or it's like one step they you know the an orca eats a squid or you know whatever it is that whatever the, the step is it, it, krill is the bedrock of everything uh and the what the krill fishing industry is doing is, is that they're creating a fishery that they put a huge amount of time and effort into making seem green sustainable uh and a very sort of above board fishery but the reality is it's a fishery that does nothing to contribute to anything like global food security and instead what it is is it's just profit extraction so they they try and push this product into areas that we don't need or products we don't we don't need at all and the conflict that i see is that who pays the price for that are the penguins and the whales that live you know are trying their very best to survive in, a, in, a, in an ecosystem that honestly is going to have a, a, a pretty steep hill to climb in regards to climate change and other threats coming down the line. So to be pulling out the animal that they all survive, need to survive just seems like uh, an environmental crime when it's a, a fisheries that we don't need at all. And the, the real issue that, that, that's rearing its head now is that they would, they would counter that by saying, well, we only, we only fish a very small amount of the krill biomass, which is true, but it's also based on very um, unrigorous data. They, 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 they haven't done a krill survey. They've just completed one and the results are coming out soon, but they hadn't done one for 20, 20, almost 20 years before that. So they were just fishing based on one uh, survey from a long time ago, which is sort of unheard of when you, think, when you talk about um, uh, a fisheries management normally you're constantly updating the your your stock management but the problem is is that they now fish right off the the areas where penguins and whales 
are expecting to find krill. So they're, they're only like two or three miles off the coast of a penguin rookery. And so when mum and dad penguins swim out to feed their young and, and try and find a krill, uh, a super trawler has come along and vacuumed it all out. And rather than fishing in areas where there isn't that wildlife conflict, uh, they're not giving any ground on that. They're, they're staying right next to um, these sort of sensitive areas. That was Alastair Allen from the Bob Brown Foundation. You can listen to the full interviews from any of these stories today by visiting 3cr.org.au forward slash Radio Blue. Thank you to everyone who has called in and made a donation. If you haven't already, there's still time. Call us on 039419 or head online to givenow.org.au forward slash CR forward slash out of the blue. We really appreciate every cent. Your donation won't just help us here at Out of the Blue, but all the radio, all the radical presenters here at 3CR. And that's all we've got time for this week, but we'll be back next week with more great stories from our marine environment. Thanks for tuning in to 3CR's Radiothon, and stay tuned. Stay radical. Stay tuned. Stay radical. 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser, June 2023. To donate, call the station 0394198377 or donate online, 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2023. Stay tuned. Stay radical. Stay radical.